You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is first-time guest expert, Mr. John Del Vecchio. John is the author of the brand-new book just released titled Unbounded Wealth. In the book, he talks about the George Costanza School of Investing. You Seinfeld fans uh, will want to stay tuned and learn about that. And he also will share with us a story about the world's richest gym teacher. So, fun interview today on the program. In this segment, though, I want to talk to you a bit about a trend that's taking place. I call this trend evolving wealth preservation and storage. In other words, the way people store their wealth and preserve their wealth is now undergoing radical change, although a lot of people are not aware of it. If you're not paying attention to the financial and economic developments, you might be unaware of these changes. This is not exactly front page news. However, if you choose to be a serious observer of these developments, you can see that fiat currencies are weakening and alternate wealth management strategies are quietly becoming a lot more mainstream. Now, what's driving this change? And I'll talk on today's program about the changes, about how you might be able to position yourself to take advantage of these changes. But the driving force behind these changes is wildly evolving monetary policies. See, central bankers around the world have set a course of pursuing money policies, and they've now, in my view, painted themselves into the, to, into the proverbial corner. In other words, they don't have any options left. So if you've been focused on the impeachment trial and coronavirus, you probably haven't been aware of some of the developments that we've seen take place just recently. Now, to provide you a little bit of context, if we go back and look at what happened after the financial crisis, central banks around the world, and here in the United States, our central bank is the Federal Reserve, these central banks resorted to printing money after they reduced interest rates to zero. And reducing interest rates to zero did not produce the effect that the central bankers wanted. And what did they want? They wanted a boom. Well, in a fractional reserve banking system under which we operate, as money moves from one bank to another, money is created. Now, I'll give you just a quick example because this can be a little bit confusing. Let's say I deposit $100,000 cash in my bank. Under the current reserving rules of 10%, my banker has to reserve $10,000 but can loan out the other $90,000. In other words, Money is created as money is loaned. So if money's moving fast and the velocity of money is high, more money is created. The $90,000 that my banker loaned to a home buyer was paid to the home seller, who promptly deposited the $90,000 in her bank. That banker, in turn, reserved 10% or $9,000 and loaned out the other $81,000. By reducing interest rates, borrowing becomes more attractive, borrowing activity increases, and more money is loaned into existence. This is why the Fed in the past has reduced interest rates, to increase the money supply. 
After the financial crisis, however, due to the level of private sector debt that existed, borrowing did not pick up despite interest rates of nearly 0%. So the Federal Reserve embarked on this path of quantitative easing or money printing. Since money was not being loaned into existence because private sector debt levels were too high and consumers weren't borrowing money, the Federal Reserve decided just to print it. Now, whenever you hear or read that the Fed is expanding its balance sheet, it simply means the Fed is printing money. Now, there was a Reuters article published this past week, and it used this term, expanding the balance sheet. But again, when you hear that, think the Fed is printing money. And this money printing, at least initially, creates the illusion of prosperity. And this Reuters article points this out. I'll give you just a bit from the article, and then I'll comment. The Federal Reserve is expanding its balance sheet again at a pace not seen since the quantitative easing heyday in the early 2010s. Expanding the balance sheet, again, just means creating money. Prices for stocks and other risky assets are also rising at a fast clip, the article says. A state of affairs that a chorus of investors, economists, and former Fed officials say is no coincidence and potentially a problem. And there is a link. As the Fed expands its balance sheet or prints money, the stock market has historically gone up. Now, last fall, the Fed started buying $60 billion of Treasury bills a month to really provide some stability in the overnight lending market between banks. Now, the S&P 500, since this started, is up more than 10% since October. Now, as the Fed, at least the Fed says, they will start to turn off the tap. They'll quit expanding their balance sheet. They'll quit printing money. What will happen? Well, Peter Bukvar, who is chief investment officer with Bleakley Advisory Group, offered his opinion in the Reuters article. He said, the risk is what happens when the Fed stops increasing their balance sheet. What will stocks do when the liquidity spigot stops? We'll have to see. Well, in the wake of the financial crisis I mentioned earlier, the Fed had its balance sheet expand to $4.5 trillion at its peak. There were three different operations known as quantitative easing, or QE. Now, keep in mind, when the Fed, again, expands its balance sheet, it is printing money. Now, Fed Chair Powell, Jerome Powell, who is chair of the Fed, and other policymakers have asserted that their latest balance sheet expansion is a technical adjustment and not stimulus. It is a technical adjustment and not stimulus. Call it what you want. If you're creating money, it's creating money. You can put perfume on a pig, but it's still a pig. Mr. Powell said this, our treasury bill purchases, and where does the Fed get the money to buy these treasury bills? It creates it right out of thin air. Mr. Powell said our treasury bill purchases should not be confused with a large-scale asset purchase programs 
that we deployed after the financial crisis. Well, a lot of pundits and market watchers are not buying it. Count me among them. Several have dubbed it QE Light. Danielle DiMartino Booth, founder of Quill Intelligence and former advisor to former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher, said this, You can debate it all you want, but as long as the flows are increasing the size of the balance sheet, stocks are going to rise in price. Now, I did some research. The S&P rose about 37% during both QE1 and QE3, and by about 10% under QE2. Since the Fed has recently engaged in this technical adjustment, as Mr. Powell wants us to call it, essentially printing money, stocks, as measured by the S&P 500, have gained 11%. Now, when the Fed prints, it has to go somewhere, and it typically goes, the money has to go somewhere, I should say, and it typically goes into stocks and other speculative type assets. Now, as I said, money printing creates the illusion of prosperity initially. Now, in many areas of the economy today, this prosperity illusion exists, but in other parts of the world, new and even crazier monetary experiments are being executed because money printing alone is no longer producing the results that central bankers hope. So as more money is printed, it takes more money creation to create the same level of this prosperity illusion. So are stocks overvalued here? In my view, without a doubt. What should you do to protect yourself? Well, I'm going to talk a bit about that with John Del Vecchio, and I'll talk more about it in the last segment of today's program. I'd encourage you to stay with us, and I'd also encourage you to check out the website, Retirement Lifestyle Advocates. There are a lot of free resources there as well. RetirementLifestyleAdvocates.com is the website. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am very pleased to have joining me as a first-time guest here on the program, uh, Mr. John Del Vecchio. Uh, John has just released his third book. It's titled Unbounded Wealth. We're going to chat with him about it. Uh, it's a 12-step plan to financial freedom. So I thought it'd be a particularly good topic for us to talk about uh, here on RLA Radio. Uh, John has a very extensive and illustrious background. Uh, he has appeared on CNBC, Fox, Bloomberg. Uh, he's had uh, uh, articles published or been mentioned in articles in Investors Business Daily, The Wall Street Journal, and Barron's. And uh, he's got a strong background in money management as well. Uh, John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, John. Your your book um, that was just released actually in January, uh, Unbounded Wealth, 12 Simple Steps to Break Free of the Man and Live Life on Your Own Terms. Talk to the listeners a bit about what what motivated you to write the book. Well, uh, actually, this is my third book. And uh, my first book, uh, What's Behind the Numbers, is very technically oriented. I'm a forensic accountant by trade. And so my father started to read that, got about 30 pages into it, and said that he was proud of me, but he didn't understand a word that I wrote. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wanted to... Um, come up with something that 
essentially has broad appeal. Anyone can understand it. It's designed to be read in two hours or less. It's the path that I took to financial independence and building a multi-million dollar portfolio. Uh, I hired an illustrator, so there's some cartoons in there to keep it fun and lighthearted and interesting. And basically, um, my goal was to help people become financially independent and uh, you know improve their lot in life and their retirement. So I will mention to the listeners, if you'd like to get more information about John's book or order it, the website is unboundedwealth.com, unboundedwealth.com, and I'd encourage you to check that out, and I'll mention it again here before the segment uh, is over. So, John, tell me, uh, just just in your experience, uh, what are the biggest obstacles to people reaching this American dream of, of retiring and being financially independent? I think the biggest obstacle is I created a fictional a fictional family in the book called the Joneses. You've heard of don't keep up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Problem with keeping up with the Joneses is the Joneses are broke. So they have this facade. They live in a McMansion. They have two gas guzzling cars, special golf clubs that correct their slice. You know all the all the good stuff, the gadgets in life. Um, but they only have about sixty thousand dollars socked away. So you know if Mr. Jones loses his job or becomes ill. Uh, they can't support that lifestyle. So the biggest thing is you have to essentially not be consumed by consumption anymore and realize that um, you can't just spend all your money on this stuff and then expect to um, have a fully funded retirement down the line. It just doesn't work that way. So consumption is a is a big obstacle. It's a big part of our of our culture. Uh, and the other thing is people just don't get started. You know, the, the SECURE Act was recently passed. Uh, if your listeners are not familiar with that, that's the government essentially trying to make it easier to invest in 401ks and RIAs and and lengthening the time in which you have to take um, minimum distributions. But only about half the people that even have access to that now anyways, even invest in a 401k. So people just don't even um, get started on the right path to begin with. And that's what I'm really trying to get them to wake up and realize that if they do that, they can be so much better off than they are today. And, you know, John, I think it's uh, 71% of the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending, and there is a lot of spending out there. Uh, I don't know what percentage, but I would dare to venture a, a big chunk that is debt-fueled consumption, people putting money on credit cards. Uh, credit card debt is at an all-time high. Uh, we've got uh, auto debt that's high. Subprime auto debt is at an all-time high. Mortgage debt's creeping back up there. So when you start talking about one of the biggest problems is consumption, um, I'd like your take on the debt issue, and it sounds to me like you might be talking about a budget. Does that word come up anywhere in your book? Yeah, so it's not so much a budget because I think a budget um, – I, I don't personally have a budget. What I do is I review my spending and seeing where the money is going. So 25% of families that make over $150,000 or more a year live paycheck to paycheck. That's just insane. That's an astounding you know, statistic, isn't it? Yeah, it's brutal. And we're not talking about just you know living in San Francisco or New York City. Um, <clears throat> so people are just living paycheck to paycheck when they have significant income that they should be saving. Uh, you know, if, if you've guessed by my last name, I'm Del Vecchio. I'm, I'm Italian, so I like to pay cash for just about everything. <laughs> Definitely, you know, I have a credit card. I've had one since I was 18. I've never paid a dime of interest. You know, you don't get rich paying somebody else 18% a year interest, buying stuff that you can't afford that you don't even need anyways. That's just not how you get ahead. Uh, Credit card is a valuable tool, obviously, for 
getting an airline ticket or booking a hotel room or a rental car, but it's not, it's not, you know, a piggy bank where you should just go in there and rate it and um, pay massive amounts of interest for stuff that you don't need. If you're paying for something with a credit card, um, you really need to sit down and figure out, do I really need this? Uh, how's it going to impact my life in a, in a beneficial way? And truly, what is it going to cost me to buy this thing, whatever that happens to be? So uh, there's a lot of people that accumulate, and, and the people that do accumulate money seem to accumulate all their money in a retirement account, uh, like an IRA or a 401k or a 403b, whatever uh, type of plan they might be eligible for. Um, to what extent are you a fan of using retirement accounts uh, moving ahead? And to, to, to go back and comment on the SECURE Act, we did a program on the SECURE Act a week ago and talked about some of the good. And then, of course, on the back end, the stretch-out IRA goes away. So with, with a lot of the changes happening to retirement accounts, what's your opinion? Is that where people should start? Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of retirement accounts. I've owned my own business since 2010. And um, I have not only a 401k, but I have a defined benefit pension plan myself. And it's extremely complex. You do actually have to hire an actuary to figure it out. And so I have, you know, people that I've hired that, that handle that and deal with uh, the Department of Labor and, and the uh, IRS. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of socking huge amounts of money away, deferring taxes on that for as long as I possibly can. Um, and unfortunately, very few percentage of the people, like we talked about earlier, even participate in these plans when they have them available to them through, you know, an employer. So you got to start there. I mean, you're just, you're giving away free money by not, by not even participating in the plan because a lot of employers will match up to a certain percentage. So if you phrase it in that way, like, would you like an extra $3,000, no strings attached? People would generally say yes, they, they would like, you know, more money. So it's, it's mind boggling to me that people don't participate in that, but that's, absolutely where you should start. Uh, any employer-related plan, if you work for yourself, then you need to look into those options because you can, as a, as a self-employed person, um, the savings options and the retirement options are massive. Uh, they're tremendous in this country. So as I'm uh, listening to you talk, John, it uh, occurred to me, I had a chance to speak with Bill Danko. Uh, uh, I'm giving away my age here now, but it's been quite a few years ago. He's the co-author of The Millionaire Next Door, um, and I believe it's he and Thomas Stanley that wrote that book. And in the book, they profiled the typical American millionaire, and it's exactly the opposite of this uh, you know, 25% of the families making $150,000 or more living paycheck to paycheck. They tend to drive a you know, an older car. So to, to what extent would you say that, that that model, which they wrote about a couple decades ago, is still the way people become wealthy? Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get you're not going to get ahead if you're just spending, you know, more money than you make and going into debt. So obviously, it's a very simple equation. It's revenue less expenses equals what you have left over. So that certainly that behavior, I don't think has changed. One thing that I write about in my book uh, is what I call the George Costanza School of Investing. So if you're familiar with Seinfeld, you know, <laughs> George is always getting in a pickle. And one day he's with Jerry and, and Jerry says, you know, everything you've ever done is wrong. So the opposite must be right. So George orders something different for lunch. He meets this beautiful woman after he tells her that he's unemployed and lives with his parents. And then he tells George Steinbrenner how he's been horrible for the Yankees. Steinbrenner hires him. So he does the opposite of everything that he thinks he should be doing. And that's kind of how you get get way ahead in the stock market as well is you really got to go against the grain, against the tide. The most aggressive um, 
people ever were in the stock market was just before the dot-com bubble burst. So they had the highest allocation, individual investors had the highest allocation to stocks right before the dot-com bubble imploded. They had the lowest allocation ever in March of 2009, right before one of the biggest bull markets in history. So you have to do the opposite when it comes to investing. You have to do the opposite when it comes to, to saving and just your behavior. I don't know that you need to own a car that's 20 years old, um, but you certainly shouldn't be going out there buying a Maserati if you can't afford it either. So in your book, uh, you talk about the uh, the, the 12 steps. Um, um, I'd like to maybe explore those a little bit with you in the in the next segment. Uh, but I'm assuming that uh, a lot of these steps have to do with with how you invest. So when when you look at where the market stock market is today, since you just brought up stocks, stocks are very overvalued. Uh, there's there's a lot of bullish sentiment out there. Uh, to, to what extent are you light stocks now, and would you advise people maybe to be uh, lightening up on their stock allocation? Well, so that's a very good question. Obviously, the market is really kind of at the all-time highs with respect to valuation. Um, market sentiment is overly bullish. There's a tremendous amount of greed out there. But the way that I structured in the book is to use exchange-traded funds, because again, most people aren't even saving and investing to begin with. So trying to keep it pretty easy and not focus on individual companies. But one thing that I have in there is that when the market continues to go up, and it does, um, you do want to be invested in the market. And so I follow the trend, the 200-day moving average of the stock market, which is in positive territory. When that when the market falls below that 200-day moving average, then you basically reduce your allocation pretty significantly to stocks. Because if you go back 80, 100 years, um, the vast majority of the gains in the stock market have occurred when the market's above the 200-day moving average. And I hope I'm not getting too technical here for people, but that's a pretty standard pretty standard metric for the trend of the market. The, when the market is below the 200-day moving average, the returns are very, very, very meager. Um, and so in the model that I have in the book, when, when the trend is positive, you're 67% invested in stocks which we are in a positive trend right now. And when it's not, you're only 17% invested in stocks. And the benefit of that is over a 40-year period that I tested, um, you get the same, essentially the same return as the market, but with one quarter of the risk. And that's a real key point because most people can't suffer a 50% loss. They just don't come back into the market after that. And we saw that in 2008, people lost 50, 55% of their money. And then they didn't invest in March of 2009 um, because they were under allocated to stocks. So I have a little mechanism in there that, that allows you to be um, pretty fully invested when the market is in a strong uptrend and to be sitting on the sidelines when it's not. And I find that most people can suffer a 13% loss, and therefore they're more likely to get back in to the market when the signal goes the other way, but they can't suffer a 55% loss. Yeah, drawdown certainly, uh, we talk about that here on the program periodically, and uh, big drawdown requires a, a subsequent gain that is significantly higher on a percentage basis just to get back to uh, to even. So, you know, our time is up in this segment. I'd encourage the listeners, if you're just joining us, to uh, check out John Del Vecchio's book at the website unboundedwealth.com. The good news is that John will be with us for another segment, and we'll continue our conversation with him when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio, and I have the pleasure of chatting today with Mr. John Del Vecchio 
John is the author of Unbounded Wealth. It is his third book, uh, Unbounded Wealth. Uh, contains 12 steps that you can follow to get uh, financial freedom, break free from the man, and live life on your own terms. And you can get more information on the book at unboundedwealth.com. So, John, a lot of what we're talking about here um, and, and reaching a level of financial independence and, and, and having the freedom to live life on your own terms, that really looks different for everyone. So talk a little bit about how someone might figure out what their ultimate target looks like and how they go about setting goals to help them get there. Yeah, so I find goal setting to be very, very important. Um, you know, Lao Tzu said a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And the problem with retirement is we tend to think that it's so far off that we don't need to worry about it. You know, it's 30 years away or it's 40 years away or 20 years away. But those 20 years, 30 years, they come by pretty quickly. <laughs> As I get older, the years seem to go by faster and faster. So mm. um, you have to start with where you are today and um, make small incremental steps to ultimately get to where you want to be 20, 30, 40 years from now. And one important point of goal setting is that it needs to be consistent with the people around you. So if you're looking to save an extra $100 a week and figure out how to do that, um, you can't have your spouse going to the casino and betting 500 bucks a night on the craps table, right? It's just not consistent with what you're trying to accomplish and the buy-in that you're, that you're trying to get from the rest of your family. So <clears throat> I start out, you know, really in uh, small steps. Today, I have daily goals. I have weekly goals monthly goals. Uh, and then I have long-term goals as well. And I'm trying to get to that long-term, uh, ultimately, whatever that happens to be, it's different for everyone. But I get there by accomplishing those goals in the interim, those those short, simple steps. And then it's not very overwhelming because if you say, well, 30 years from now, I need $8 million to retire. That's just pretty overwhelming. Like, how are you going to get there? Um, but if I say today, I'm just going to try to save an extra hundred bucks. It's a much easier thing to digest. And, and John, do you, do you find that, uh, there, you know, there's a lot of success coaches out there that will say, you know, start with a goal that you know you can reach and then build from there because success breeds success. Is that your experience? Absolutely. So confidence is an important, you know, factor in really in achieving anything. You need to have the confidence to do that. So as you are able to accomplish those small goals on a daily or weekly basis or monthly basis, it builds the confidence that you can achieve ultimately where you're trying to get to 20, 30, 40 years from now. So uh, I couldn't agree with that more. Well, John, as we were chatting a bit uh, and talking about uh, your book and some of the chapters, you have a chapter that is titled The World's Richest Gym Teacher, which uh, certainly uh, evokes some questions. And I'm sure the listeners uh, are wondering, What's this about, and how did the world's richest gym teacher become rich? Because that's not a high-paying profession. Explain what's in the chapter. Right. So that's based off my cousin, Nikki. Nikki is a physical education teacher, and um, he's 27 years old. So someday he'll probably be the world's richest gym teacher. He might not be right now, but he's well on his way. And the great thing about Nikki is at 27, he's following all these steps that I lay out in the book, and he's doing a great job and building his net worth uh, pretty considerably with what you just pointed out, you know, it's it's not the highest paying profession out there. So one point is you don't need to make hundreds of thousands of dollars to save and invest and ultimately, uh, you know, retire 
comfortably. The other thing is um, Warren Buffett has said that you are your greatest asset and an investment in you is the best thing that you can make. And I feel like if you fulfill a need in the community and provide a good product, you'd be surprised at how much extra money you can make. So using Nikki as an example, um, Nikki was a great baseball player, played for played, played in college and, um, you know, certainly wasn't going to be a pro, but um, probably the best baseball player in his college in a hundred years. And Nikki can hit a baseball and he, he coaches baseball. And so who wants to learn how to hit a baseball better? Well, all the kids in town that are, playing baseball who's willing to pay for their child to learn to hit a baseball better all, all the parents in town so when nikki has the summers off he can generate substantial income utilizing that skill and teaching kids how to better hit a baseball i have another example in there of a lady that i i met when i lived in dallas texas who works in uh she's from northern thailand an area called isan and there's a lot of thai people in dallas and they want to taste the home they want food from, you know, their local region. And this is not the kind of food that you would get in a typical Thai restaurant. So she started making food at home and she had a small list of people and word spread. And every day now she sold out the three or four meals that she makes by lunchtime. And I ran the numbers and it's 75 to $90,000 a year profit, cash profit that she makes simply just making food from her home region and fulfilling a need in the community and providing a good product. So you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in opportunity here. That's nothing to, to sneeze at. And it allows you to get um, further ahead. Not what I'm not talking about is getting a degree at the University of Phoenix and spending $80,000 on an online course, and then no one's going to hire you. But we all have skills that we can monetize. We all have things that people are willing to pay us for. For me, it happens to be I, I'm very effective at reading balance sheets and financial statements. Sounds kind of boring, but people actually pay you a lot of money uh, to do forensic analysis. Uh, for other people, it's hitting a baseball. For some, it's cooking food. And uh, so you'd be surprised what, how you can monetize your skill and, and really get ahead. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. John Del Vecchio. John is the author of the book Unbounded Wealth. You can learn more by visiting the website Unbounded Wealth, and you can even order a copy of the book there. So, John, when, when you, you talk about people monetizing these special skills, it just strikes me as you were talking that, you know, today's economy is especially conducive for that. We have uh, a, a low unemployment rate. Um, there seems to be uh, really a lot of entrepreneurial opportunity with a lot of businesses looking to outsource. Uh, a good percentage of the population has, uh, you know, a fair amount of discretionary income that they're they're willing to pay to get certain goals, which are different for everybody. So comment a little bit on uh, today's economy and, and, and just how that opportunity compares today with maybe some point in the past. Yeah. So there's a sort of a common phrase called the gig economy, which I, I hate to use that word because when I think of a gig, I think of a, you know, a local band getting up and, and playing a few songs in a set while I have a couple of beers. To me, that's a gig. I'm talking about skills. I think that it's a little bit demeaning to call it a gig um, when you have a, a skill. And, you know, the world is, um, I like to say the world is flatter today, meaning that it's very easy to, to communicate and get your message out because everyone's connected. Um, when I started my career, we had, we were the only people that had a, this certain data set and we had a $10,000 computer. It was a one gigabyte computer. Now you can get a gigabyte thumb drive, you know, at Walmart for 99 cents. So 
it's very easy to, to advertise, get your message out there. Everyone's connected. Um, and as you mentioned, the unemployment rate is extremely low. If you told me 3.5% is even possible, I would think that that was crazy, but it, that's where it's at. And you're right, people do have discretionary income. So if you have, it's very simple. If you can fulfill a need in the community and deliver a good product, then I think you'll be you know, very successful on balance, absolutely. So, John, let me go back in the time we have left and just talk a bit about uh, maybe a topic or related topic to what we talked about in the first segment. Take somebody out there today that maybe is raising a family. They they are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they have credit card debt. They want to invest, uh, but they just seem to be stuck in this this pattern. What advice would you give them to, to, to breaking out of that pattern, and, and what actions would you advise them to take first? Yeah, first thing you got to do is figure out where your spending is going because people say, well, I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but then they're uh, drinking Starbucks every day or driving around in a BMW. And then <laughs> you can quickly point out, well, if you weren't drinking that Starbucks and you were making it home, that's $3.50 a day that you're saving right there. That's 7% a year for 30 years. That's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So um, you got to sit down at your kitchen table. You got to figure out where your expenses are going. Uh, and you need to look for areas that you could cut. <clears throat> I mentioned in the book, for example, that the average person only uses 25% of their wardrobe. So are you going out there and buying an extra pair of shoes that you don't need? Um, are you spending on that Starbucks? Are you eating out too much? Eating out's expensive. Uh, you won't know that, though, until you actually look at where, where the money's going. And, you know, people just kind of whip out their credit card and not thinking about the long-term ramifications of that, how it really impacts um, their bottom line on a day-to-day -day basis. And so until you sit down and, and really write out everything and analyze it, um, you're, it's much more challenging to get ahead. So that's, that's where I would start. Well, John, we've got about two minutes left in this segment. So let's talk about people maybe that are on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, they've accumulated some money in a 401k. They've got a decent IRA balance. Um, they're looking to retire. They're looking to put together some type of a, a, a goals program or income program during retirement. Uh, what advice would you give them? Well, the good news is they're well ahead of everybody else. So they're, you know, they're probably already in the 1%. Um, I would look at uh, low cost options. Make, make sure your investment options out there are low cost in nature. Uh, that'll extend the the value of the portfolio. I mentioned in the book, one way to double your retirement in five minutes is essentially to fire your financial advisor. Um, <laughs> and I hate to hate to say that too much. I'll bet you're really popular. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so my, I have a cousin, she's 62. She's looking to retire. She has a, probably a multi-million dollar portfolio, a couple million bucks, owns her house. And that's really kind of the, the, advice that I gave her was she needs to look in at, at the cost of the funds that she's invested in is a good place to start. Um, you know, you can argue about annuities and things like that. Some of them tend to be higher cost than others. It's worked out well from, for my mother and my father, uh, annuities have, but, um, that's where I would start. Look at the cost of the investments, uh, in your portfolio. That's a real good place to, um, to cut some dead wood. Well, yeah, and certainly from my experience, uh, many people out there and, and affluent, savvy people have 
fairly significant portfolios and that prospectus shows up and they don't read it and they really have no idea what they're paying in internal investment fees. So I would certainly echo that advice. Yeah, no, that's no one reads a prospectus. I've, <laughs> I've been through a few uh, votes myself uh, over the years, and um, it's hard to get people to even look at that stuff. And so there's a lot of a lot of fat in there, um, you know, and, and all of the brokers these days, the Schwabs and the Vanguards and the Fidelities are falling over themselves to lower fees. And there's no commissions now on a lot of ETF trades and things like that. And um, it's never been a better time to be an investor from the perspective of a lot of options that are out there and the costs continue to go down. So if you already got a lot of money, that's where you need to be focused on is what are the costs? What's it costing you to, to maintain that portfolio? Well, that's a great place to leave it. Our guest today has been, been Mr. John Del Vecchio. Uh, John's book is Unbounded Wealth. Uh, if you're just joining us and you didn't catch the website, it's real simple, unboundedwealth.com. The website, again, is unboundedwealth.com, where you can get more information about John's book and order it. Uh, John, enjoyed the interview today very much. Would love to have you back down the road. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back after these words. This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. And thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. John Del Vecchio, for joining us. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I shared with you that due to money policies, maybe you'd even use the term money experiments around the world, the way that people store and preserve wealth and the way that institutions invest wealth is changing. And I talked about the very apparent and obvious link between the Fed expanding its balance sheet, which simply means the Fed is printing money, and stocks going up. In fact, during QE1 and QE3, as I mentioned, the S&P 500 went up about 37% each time, went up 10% under QE2, and it's gained 11% since the Fed has once again been engaging uh, in QE light, although they don't want us to call it that since uh, fall of this year. Now, as I mentioned at the end of the first segment, in a lot of parts of the world, just quantitative easing or money printing is not enough. Much of the world now has bonds yielding negative yields. So a negative yielding bond pays a negative rate of interest, which means you get back less than you invested at maturity. How crazy is that. This is known as NIRP, or negative interest rate policy. It's happening now all around the world, and it's changing the dynamics of wealth, wealth storage and preservation and growth. Now, I'm going to give you uh, a bit from an article that I found on Zero Hedge. Um, in an era of negative interest rate policies, cashless societies like Sweden are at a clear disadvantage. When banks are charging wealthy customers additional fees for storing their cash on deposit, the option to tran transition a chunk of one's fortune to cash suddenly makes sense. And by cash, we mean cash in hand. Here we'd call it greenbacks. German banks are also getting in on the act. To help them keep as little money in reserve accounts as possible, banks in Germany are stuffing vaults with Euro bank notes to keep them handy for customers, and it avoids additional negative interest rate policy tax on deposits. 
In other words, if you don't have the money on deposit with a central bank, you're not paying a negative interest rate. If you have cash in the vault, that at least breaks even. Now, the article said some banks have hoarded so much cash, they're running out of room to store the cash, and they're actually looking for more storage space. This behavior has been going on for years, uh, essentially since Mario Draghi, the former chair of the European Central Bank, introduced negative interest rates, and that's been almost six years ago. The article says that the physical cash holdings of German banks rose to a record 43.4 billion euros. That's the equivalent of about 48 billion U.S. dollars in cash. Bills in a vault. That's triple the amount at the end of May 2014, which is the time that negative interest rates started. Now, and Andreas Schultz, who runs a German savings bank, had this to say. He said, these days it's better to keep funds in cash rather than park them at the European Central Bank. That's despite the risk, insurance costs, and logistical hassle involved. It's a ludicrous demonstration of the consequences of the ECB's interest rate policy. A member of the German parliament by the name of Frank Schaeffler says, this is just the beginning if it continues, we'll see a boom for vault makers and security companies. So it's not just individuals keeping cash in a safe. Banks are doing the same thing. Now, in my view, negative interest rates would become, could become a worldwide phenomenon. We could see negative interest rates here in the United States. And if that happens, consumers and banks alike will look for alternative ways to store and grow wealth likely outside the banking system. In fact, former Federal Reserve Board Chair Alan Greenspan, whom you've all undoubtedly heard of, stated fairly, fairly recently that it was his view that U.S. interest rates could go negative. He said, and I'm quoting from a CNBC article, you're seeing it pretty much throughout the world. It's only a matter of time before it's in the United States. Now, demand for secure storage and alternate assets is exploding all around the world. Marcus Weiss, who is managing director at Degusa Goldhandel, the company sells gold and offers clients space to store their valuables, says this, we're seeing increased demand for our safe deposit boxes, frequently for storing cash. That high demand has lasted for months now, and we're continually, continuously expanding. Now, the other thing that's being discussed is helicopter money. Now, I don't have time to get into this in a great deal of detail. However, helicopter money simply means that the central bank prints money, and instead of buying assets from banks, it's distributed directly to the public. That would certainly lead to a massive amount of inflation. And as we are recording this, middle-class tax cuts that would be advanced are already being discussed. So, Helicopter money may actually indeed be on the way. And what that means is the way wealth is stored will continue to evolve. My point in talking about this today is simply this. When doing your planning for 2020, you want to think about this, and I would encourage you to think about being ahead of the curve. You see, waiting until a trend is obvious is sometimes too late. So what should you do? Well, 
I would encourage you to think tangible with some of your assets, not all of your assets, but some of your assets. Uh, as money is printed, tangible assets tend to be a good store of value. We've got some resources you can check out at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter there, Portfolio Watch, which is delivered via email every Monday night at 5. Uh, also, all the podcasts, uh, the podcast version of this program are posted there every Monday night at 5. And I'd also, also encourage you to check out one of our educational events. We've got a couple of educational events coming up this month. We talk about the SECURE Act. We talk about these trends. We talk about maximizing Social Security. Uh, you can go to socialsecuritydinner.com and register for that event or get more information. That is at socialsecuritydinner.com. Hey, glad you listened today. Hope you'll be back again next week. I will be. Have a great week.